Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Uh, many of you know, one of the difficulties I have every time uh, I come to this microphone is discerning what direction to go because I have several things usually on my mind at once that I think is vitally important. Well, it just happened, quote-unquote, by Holy Spirit direction, I believe, that I ran across a recording of a message that I'd given a couple of years ago. And before you feel jilted by that, uh, that I'm not bringing you an up-to-date, fresh-off-the-griddle word, everything that I was wrestling about trying to discern which subject to focus on of the three subjects that were on my mind strongly, all three are woven into this one message, which was given uh, at a time that uh, I believe was prophetically prepared for this time that we're in now. So rather than feel ripped off by the fact that it has a two-year or three-year uh, age to it, or, the you know, you need to hear this as a current word. It's 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 given for here and now. And rather than jibber-jabber about it, I'm just going to take us right into it and pray that you will uh, get from it what the Holy Spirit wants you to get for the time we're in now. Okay, thank you. And if we have any time at the end, I'll say more. If not, I'll talk to you next time. And I was asking the Lord, you know, what is the most important thing for you to know right now? And strangely enough, it had to do with uh, recognizing the value of who you are and where you are at this time in history. When you think about the millions and millions of people that have lived and how most of them have lived in abject poverty and obscurity, but not a one of them lacked preciousness in the eyes of God. And then we get to our culture in the last hundred years, did you know that since 1998 there have been over a hundred child-killing diseases wiped off the face of the earth? Now, the reason you don't know that is because that's good news, and the news people don't like to give good news. They only tell terrible things. But Now, can you get your mind around the idea that since 1998, that's not very long ago, that's about the time Mary came and filled in preaching for me here. A hundred life-destroying childhood diseases have been wiped off the face of the earth. Wow. See? That's just one little example of, of, uh, uh, of what, I, what I want to try to get across. We, we have this view that because we have electronics, we are really in touch with reality. When really the fact is just the opposite. That, that, that little box, or big box as the case may be, shrinks reality down only to what can fit inside of that square. 
and then fills that square only with the information dictated by a news director who has an agenda. So you end up watching an hour of so-called information and then they have the gall to say at the end of the broadcast, now you're up to date. Or fair and balanced, which gets funnier to me every day, you know. Uh, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. The seat of the scornful. Who, what does that mean? The seat of the scornful. That's, that's uh, the average news broadcaster. The, scorn, the word scornful, is, the word literally means to be so out of touch with the good that everything that comes across your path, you turn negative. That's the news media of this culture. And if you let yourself be formed by that, you are, you are as long, far away from being renewed in the spirit of your mind as you can get. You know, C.S. Lewis said in 1940, he said, I never read the newspapers. This is World War II. He said, I never read the newspapers. He said, number one, uh, if anything bad enough happens, somebody will tell me. And he said, number two, they probably will be more accurate with the information because they're eyewitnesses and they're not bleeding it through the London Times um, propaganda machine. Well, what would he say now? You don't realize how much you are affected by the spirit of the age that you're exposed to because you could, unless you really willfully protect yourself from it, it's hitting you even if the machine's not on. Um, it's, in the, it's in the airways. Uh, there are more people calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today than at any time in previous history put together. There are more spontaneous prayer meetings going on in America today than that at any time since the Civil War and maybe way beyond the Civil War. We know numerically speaking it is way beyond the Civil War. There are more close-knit, emotionally warm, loving relationships between races in, in friendships and families and marriages than at any time in the history of the world. There is every reason in the world for you to be encouraged. But you see, the, the, the media, one of the things that it does, my, my children talked me and Mary into watching American Idol. I, I could care less. And they said, well, you just got to see these people. They, just, they come from all over the country and, and they, they got great voices. And I said, okay, we'll watch it. So we watched American Idol. Well, they, we watched one of the shows that's the pre-show. You know what I'm talking about? Where they actually gather people and they are trying out to get on the show. And that was, that was hilarious. I mean, some of it was, some of it was just absolutely hilarious. And I thought, you know, these, these folks are out running around loose with driver's license on their own and they're, they're free to roam around. Scary. But then we watched, so that got me hooked because it was funny. So I watched the next one and as it began to narrow, 
the kids had to explain it to me. You know, well, you know, they as it begins to narrow, it gets to be more serious, and and the people with real talent begin to show up and rise to the surface, and uh, uh, then they pick from that who goes on the real show, and then on the real show they're kind of fighting for their professional life. Uh, so off and on over the next few weeks, I would come in and they'd be watching it and I'd catch a few minutes. My point in all that is this. What troubled me terribly was how many of those young people I saw have complete meltdowns when they didn't get picked. And so I began to pay attention. I began to do some research. I began to go behind the scenes and and follow up on some of the Stories. Now, I know there are hundreds and hundreds of people that participated in that, that show. So I'm not trying to make a statement about the overall show. I'm thankful for the people that did uh, be, you know, begin a good career in music and have made a, a real uh, effect on, on music in a good way, some of them. But I, I couldn't get my mind off kids who actually tried to commit suicide because they didn't get picked. Now, speaking of suicide, we have 22 veterans a day. I said a day committing suicide. Did you hear what I said? 22 American soldiers a day are committing suicide. Now, I just opened up our time together focusing on the positives that you have not been able to see. And then here I go, jumping over to something so terrible and so negative as to say uh, what I just said about suicide. Suicide is on the rise in 13 to 15-year-olds. More suicide ideation going on in 13 to 15-year-olds than at ever any time in history. There is no mystery to me why that's happening. So at the same time this wonderful good is happening, this terrible disintegration is happening. In my early days, as I was studying the scriptures, I couldn't help but wrestle sometimes with what was a a mystery to me. How I'd read, I'd read Matthew 24, I would read Mark 13, I would read Joel chapter 2, and all the other scriptures that talk about the coming of the Lord and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit right before the return of the Lord and the great harvest at the end of the age and then there would be these other verses that would talk about evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived Uh, men will walk in their own lust saying where is the promise of his coming Uh, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and there'll be terrible horrible demonic manifestations all of this is presented in scripture as happening at the same time and I used to wonder, how, how is that supposed to work? Well, now I know. I'm living in it. You're living in it. Evil is more manifest than it's ever been in the history of the world. Goodness is more manifest than it's ever been in the history of the world. Proverbs chapter 4 says, The path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter until it reaches perfect noonday. 
Hebrews chapter 10, quoting Psalm 110, the Father says to the Son at the resurrection and the ascension, as Jesus steps back into the throne room and takes his throne on the uni- of the universe, the Father turns to him and says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Be seated until I make your enemies your footstool. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not. This is an aside, and I don't want to go chasing it. But that verse doesn't fit anybody's end time charts if it's pre-trib rapture. Be seated until I make your enemies your footstool. Which uh, refers to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the heathen imagine a stupid, vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers of the world take counsel against, against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break his bonds asunder and cast away his cords from us. He who dwells in heaven shall laugh. For the Lord is already, he said, he turns to the son and says, ask me and I will give you the nations. I will give you the nations for your inheritance. When you read Revelation, unless you're jaded by end time darkness and gloom and doom and hopeless concepts and get focused on the mark of the beast and all that stuff, the first thing Revelation unveils for you is a throne room that is ruling the universe. At the center of that throne is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And I saw before the throne a multitude no man could number from every nation and kindred and tongue ask of me and I will give you nations there are more nations hearing the gospel right now than at any time in history well so I'm trying to paint both pictures for you at the same time if you feel confused and you don't know where, where, where am I, what I'm driving at I'm driving at helping you Rest in the reality that the worst is happening and the best is happening at the same time. It's like Charles Dickens opening uh, to Tale of Two Cities. It's the best of times, it's the worst of times. There's never been a day of such darkness and confusion. And there's never been a day of such glory and manifest revelation of the kingdom of God. And it's happening at the same time. And I've wrestled with this for years. I've stood at this spot a dozen times over the last X number of years. And, and I've always made reference to this in some degree. Everywhere I go, I make reference to it because it's been a wrestling match for me. And when I was y'all's age, you know, that's anybody over here. Anybody. Anybody. Yeah. When I, yeah. If you're under 60, this applies to you. When I was y'all's age, I really wrestled with it because it affected the way I planned my life. You know, if we're going to fly out of here any minute, well, then why bother with anything? Well, I knew we weren't going to fly out of here any minute. But what does that mean? How do I prepare? How do I live? And so, uh, working through it over the years and having Christians from various backgrounds and various parts of the world come to me with their personal struggles, uh, I, I've, had to, I've had to work this out in a, in a place that is not just something I can cope with, but something that moves me forward positively. 
And I've reached a point over the last few years where I am not discouraged by what seems to be rising darkness and evil. I'm not discouraged by it. First of all, I I want to say this in a way that won't confuse you. God is way bigger than the tiny little view of salvation that most churches have preached all my life. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it makes no sense to me that Jesus Christ, God Almighty, became a man, came to the earth, died the most horrible death imaginable for the salvaging of the world, but the only thing he manages to save out of it is a handful of Church of Christ members, a few Baptists, and a couple of Pentecostals. who all know they're the only ones, and when they all get to heaven, they won't know that the others are there. Because if they found out the others were there, it wouldn't be heaven for them, it would become hell. There's something about that that just doesn't sound economically sane, to say the least. Not to mention, it doesn't say much about the love of God. Right? So the the, the bigness of God's capacity to save the world is... Far, far beyond what most people preach. And of course, if I said that in the average church, I'd be kicked out of it. Because church members seem to get worried if you start believing too many positive things about the love of God. They, they, they get nervous. you got to think that God is pretty mean like they are uh, to be really orthodox. See? But that's a rabbit trail I'm going to pull myself back from. And I'm just saying that to say... Those 22 uh, Vietnam, uh, those 22 uh, veterans that are dying every day, uh, I don't, I don't wring my hands over wondering how God could let that happen. God is big enough to know who they are, know what's going on with them, and and He, the Judge of all the earth, will do right by them. The Judge of all the earth will do right by the Ethiopian woman, born in poverty, born under the thumb of a Muslim bully, born under the the control of an Islamic demonic system. She never had one kind day in her life, and so she dies in childbirth at the age of 14. But she went to hell because she wasn't born in America and didn't get to hear the gospel on our terms. Has that ever bothered anybody? That that's just not, that doesn't make sense? You know why it doesn't make sense? Because it doesn't make sense. Because it's ridiculous. Because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's what we have developed in our religious systems. I'll tell you this. Whoever is saved is saved by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that shed blood reached far more than our little circle in South Louisiana, South Mississippi, South wherever. Thank God for that. Okay, so... I know I'm not, I may be stirring up more questions by that statement than I'm giving answers. That's fine. I hope I do. I hope they bother you until you wrestle it out with God for yourself. I'm sure many of you have. But my point in saying all that is, if you really begin to believe that God is love, not that love is God, big difference, but that God is love, 
And that God is not taken by surprise by anything that's happening. Then you can rest in the statement you hear quite often that, quote, God is in control. God is in control. Now, God is in control is not a very comforting thing to say to someone whose life feels out of control. Because it makes them feel like God is in control and he's tormenting you. Are you, are you, are you with me? So religious cliche, little phrases that we use all the time without thinking about them, like God is in control. Yes, God is in control, ultimately. But God has given tremendous leeway for freedom of choice among humans and demons. Or God is schizophrenic. Now, I know God's not schizophrenic, and I'm not trying to be irreverent when I say that. If God is in control means you believe everything that happens is God micromanaging it and God preordained for it to happen because God is micromanaging everything, then your God is insane. But if God is in control means God is sovereign over whatever happens so that whatever move the powers of darkness makes, God will counter it because God's already a thousand steps ahead of the devil and he will take what was evil and turn it not only for our good but for the good of hundreds, thousands, and millions of others and make the devil pay dearly for what he thought he was getting away with, then that God I can worship. Now which of those two gods is one that you can trust and worship and love. You can't love the one that's micromanaging everything and causing evil, and you just have to sit back and say, well, you know, sometimes God's just not in a, a saving mood. Or, you know, sometimes God's got, you know, God's got uh, other agendas, and you're just not his focus for compassion today. It, is it no wonder that pagan people don't want to hear what Christians have to say? It, I mean, Am I making sense? Am I making sense? So, wrestling through these two issues, the good and the bad, that's happening at the same time. Jesus' disciples are walking with him through Jerusalem, and they come to uh, the, the temple area, which is, to them, the center of the universe. The, the temple is God's throne on earth. And they are showing Jesus the temple buildings, which, I mean, obviously they know he's seen them before. That doesn't mean that the disciples were taking Jesus on a tour because they thought he was ignorant. And, you know, he's from Nazareth. He doesn't know much. That's not what that, that means. That just means they were walking, just like you would walk with your kids through the city of Washington, and you'd say, they're... Washington Monument, there's the Capitol. That's what they were doing. They were just t talking about the beauty of it all and the meaning of it all. And Jesus takes that as an opportunity to upset them and says, you see these buildings? There will come a day soon when there will not be left one stone on top of the other that will not be torn down. Then he just walks off over the Valley of Kidron to the Mount of Olives and they chase him down later and say, what, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? Now, Jesus had not mentioned the end of the world. 
He had only mentioned the end of the temple, which to any thinking young Jew is the end of the world. That's the end of the world. Temple going to be torn down, not one stone left on top of another one. And many of you probably know that one of the great terrible truths of that event was that when when the temple was torn down, a rumor got out among the soldiers that the Jews had hidden gold between the stones. And so they tore the stones down, stone by stone, till there was not one stone left on the other because they were trying to find the gold. Jesus begins to unfold for them the end of the age. And you, you all know it. You can probably quote it. Most of you can quote it. Uh, he starts off by saying, make sure that you let no one deceive you. That in itself you could spend an hour talking about. There's always warning about deception related to the end of the age. But I can't chase that rabbit right now. Then he says, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes in diverse places. Uh, and many lists, all these terrible things which we all could point to in our current newspapers. He says, don't be upset over these things. The end is not yet. This will be age long. There will always be wars and rumors of wars. There will always be earthquakes in diverse places. They are increasing like birth pangs increase toward the moment of the birth. They increase with intensity and they increase in uh, repetition toward the birth. But he says the end is not yet. So when did Jesus ever say they would know the time of the end? Verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. Now, he didn't say if you get the last tract handed out to the last person, that's the signal for the rapture. That's not what he said. That's a fantasy evolved, devolved by the imagination of men. And it has been a terrible tool, effective tool, to keep us from believing and obeying what he did say. Because what did he say? What's the last thing he said to us when he left? I'm, I'm with you always to the end of the world. Go and make disciples of the nations. He didn't say go preach to the nations. He said go make disciples of the nations. What this has to do with is transformation of cultures by the power of the gospel. That means the gospel is much larger than individual salvation. That doesn't mean there's not reality in individual salvation, for heaven's sakes. See, I'll be glad when we can, we can get past having to always keep this balanced by saying, now, I don't mean this when I say this. So, you know, as long as we're still having to balance everything, we're not getting the, the main point. Of course, individual salvation is involved in it. 
But most of the New Testament is written to a plural audience. You don't have the mind of Christ individually. We have. You all have the mind of Christ. I need you to fill up what I don't fully see yet. Now, the more I walk with him, the more I become more and more and more filled with his mind. And the day will come when we will all individually have the mind of Christ. But in the meantime, I need you. And you need me. I need the different points of view that you you may have that kind of rock my boat a little bit. The Holy Spirit loves that. What has been a terrible bondage to us all? And I'm not saying this to be critical, y'all. We can't help it. It's human nature. But religious spirits easily find nests where they can do their thing among small Christian groups that feel inhibited and afraid of larger groups taking them over or jealousy among denominations or some local preacher afraid some other preacher is going to steal his sheep, whatever that means. Uh, That kind of stuff. But it can be even more small-minded than that. Uh, You know, uh, I I just, I grew up this denomination, and I don't want to hear what anybody else has to say, because that doesn't match what I grew up listening to. And they show you something in Scripture, say, well, I mean, they wouldn't say it like this, but basically they say, well, I don't care what the Bible says, that's not how I was raised. See? That, That religious spirit doesn't mean they're not saved. See, we, we err in the other direction just as badly when we say, well, they don't even know the Lord. I mean, no, don't ever say they don't know the Lord. The Lord knows them. That's the main point. But the point is, this, this, this muddled mix, this 36,000 denominations in one country. We're in the 500th year of the Reformation this, this, this weekend or October 31st, was 500 years. 500 years. Every 500 years in church history, there has been a major transformation in Christian culture. Not just renewal, not just revival, but reformation, reformation. We are in that reformation time again. Now, I mean, we're here. We're here together this Sunday morning. You're, 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 you're here, partly because our culture made Sunday morning church the norm, and I love it, and I've got a lot of wonderful memories with it, and I've got a lot of not so wonderful memories with it. But little by little, you end up hearing people say things like. Uh, they quit having Sunday night church at church so and so down there. That that's a sign of a dying church, you know. Is it really? I mean, where is the Bible verse that says you've got to meet Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and 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 and? That's just legalism. It's culture. Now, I'm not saying that a church that stops having Sunday night services, maybe it is a sign that it's dying, but it's not because they're not meeting on Sunday night. That's just a sideline symptom. Crazy stuff like that. 
when I was pastoring, that's another story, but when I was pastoring the last time, the last time I was pastoring was the last time. Uh, I moved I moved the pulpit out of the way because it, it was in my way because I wanted to get to the people. I wanted to get to them. And Mary would sit close. Mary would sit close. So if I passed her, she said, back up, back up. You know, she, she, <laughs> I would back up because I just wanted to get to them. And, and uh, a lady came to me after church one day and rebuked me because I had moved the sacred desk. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. I said, you're just who I'm coming after. You're the one. I said it lighthearted, but, it, you know, it got the point across. Um, God is shaking up Everything. Hebrews 12, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. It's like when you go to work out and you get on the, you know, you get on the stair climber, everything that can be shaken will be shaken until that which no longer shakes is taken out of the way. Now, everything that is of excess, everything that can't produce healthy life is going to be shaken. I hate that analogy. I know it's a terrible analogy. Uh, yeah. A uh, whole lot of shaking going on in ways I don't want to talk about. But my point is, y'all, God will have to let everything that is not kingdom be shown for what it is. Not because he wants to hurt anybody or rub their nose in, in it, but, but if you're remodeling a house, it's going to look like hell before it looks like heaven. It's impossible to get to the, the good you've envisioned without what is now comfortable for you, but old, being removed. And the removal will be sometimes violent. Not violent in the sense of hurting anybody, but it's violent. it does violence to our emotional world. I mean, we've all been through that. We're all going through that. Just living in time makes that happen. Uh, to be in time is to change. And to change is to be in insecurity. Unless you learn to yield it all up to the one who does not change and who cares about you and who knows how painful it is and who knows that this is hard for you and has promised he would be with you in the process. I am with you, Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the age. What's the end of the age? The final shaking where the process is complete and all these agonizing transformations are, are finished. But what causes the agony is when the holy and the unholy come together, there's conflict. When the, when the, the kingdom and the chaos come together, there's seemingly conflict. I, I don't mean this to sound ever disrespectful. But I used to really wrestle with the Lord about a lot of scriptures and just, and, and one of them that bothered me my whole life as a boy 
was the way God came down at Sinai and scared them spitless. I mean, even Moses was frightened out of his mind. And I was asking the Lord about it. You know what I mean when I say I'm at, I mean, I'm wrestling with it inside myself and I'm, I'm listening for some kind of response. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying God came down and sat on a stool and asked my, for, you know, my forgiveness for upsetting me. I don't mean that. You know? But I said, I don't understand. I mean, perfect love casts out fear. Your Bible doesn't make any sense. Perfect love casts out fear. And Moses, Moses says to the people in, in Exodus 20 through 33, he says, don't be afraid. The Lord is coming to teach you the fear of the Lord. Could you make it a little more unclear? <laughs> and, I mean, you don't have to accept my version of my conversation, but the, the, Lord, the Lord spoke to my heart, and I wrote it down. I wrote it down as he spoke it to me. He said, perfect love casts out fear. So, whatever degree of fear you have in response to me, that's the stuff in you that shakes, that has to be removed. It's not me having to learn to be more gentle with you. It's you having to learn to be more trusting of me. And when I came down to a people who had lived under an occult culture of slavery and evil and demon worship and Pharaoh worship, they were filled with Egypt. I took them out of Egypt. And you know this, this is almost cliche. I took them out of Egypt, but then I had to spend the rest of the time getting Egypt out of them. Right? We all have heard that. Well, that's just the way it is. And so God had to come down. God, here, here's a question. Why did God come down at all? Because he wanted to be close to them. I mean, if you read the story, God seems injured when they say to Moses, you go talk to him and come back and tell us. God, God if I can use the, the... If God can be hurt, it's because God chooses to be vulnerable because of love. But God's heart seemed injured by that. No, we don't want to hear his voice. You go hear him and tell us what he said. Right? And so God establishes the tabernacle. Why? I, I would hear the tabernacle teaching as a boy, and it was like, okay, it's like... It's a big puzzle, and you got to go in the outer court, and then you, that's okay, and you go in the inner court, and then you, that's darker and scarier. Then you go into the third area, and you, you'll die if you're not careful. Does that make any of y'all want to go in? How about the outer court 
everybody's welcome. The inner court, I, I want you all to be welcome, but it, you, you can't just come in with your Egypt stuff. And the holiest of all, I want you to be totally with me. But by the time you come here, it means out there has been cut off completely. And you don't have the power to do that on your own. If you, if you barge your way in, the holy will kill the unholy. It's not that I will kill you, it's that it will kill it. And you're so tied to it that when it dies, you die. So I have to get as close as I can get without hurting you. And you don't understand when I have you bringing the sacrifices and putting the blood of the lamb on the altar. That's not to warn you that you're going to die if you don't do it right. It's to tell you what I'm going to do to make it right. Not what you've got to do, what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm doing a study right now on the crucifixion. What I mean by that is, I, I'm, I guess maybe I'm finally at the age where I, I can't hide anymore from the hard questions I've been struggling with my whole life. I mean, I, I can't hide from them anymore. And I'm, I've got some issues about, just some questions about this that I just wrestled with on the inside of my head. And I'm beginning to get to the age where I want to dump them on other people and let them wrestle with it. Why crucifixion? Why crucifixion? Do you know what crucifixion was? No, we think we know. You thought, you thought Mel Gibson was going way over the top. No. Let me, let me just say one thing. As dark and painful as Mel Gibson's presentation was, do you really believe that when Romans are, are going to drive nails through a man's hands and feet after they've beat him almost to death with a whip, that they're going to provide him a covering for his privates? No, they didn't. In fact, one of their favorite things to do was make fun of Jewish men who had been circumcised. That was one of their main pleasures. That's just one tiny little example of things. Why crucifixion? Why not a firing squad? Why not beheading? Why not poison? Why not any other number of... Because there was so much going on in the crucifixion besides just physical death. It will take, it will take more time than we've got this year to cover it all. So when Jesus, when the Father says the blood is on the altar of the mercy seat, not to make you afraid you're going to be killed if you go in there, but so that you get a picture painted for you of what it's going to cost me to bring you in here. Because y'all, sometimes in this war, I, I just don't have any answers anymore. You've been there before. You came through them. You don't really know how you came through them. You, but you came through them. 
And we, that's how we, this is how we do this. This is how we enter in. This is how we end up. One day we will come through the last one and we will realize school is over. This is, this is summer. This is eternal summer. School is out forever. One day that'll happen. But on, in the process, <clears throat> there are times when I, my prayer life is, is a little tiny cup of wine and a cracker. That's my whole prayer life. I don't have any answers. I do not understand all my binding and loosing and all my, all my declarations of war and all, all the stuff that I know is valid and I, I know it's true. But for me today, this moment, I don't have it. I don't have it. I know I've got it positionally, but it ain't helping me positionally. And I take that bread and that wine, and I remember it's not what I do to get in. It's what he did to bring me in. That's what communion means. Not magic, not legalism. Childlike trust of simple bread and wine. Something every mother in the Middle East gives a child. that The child receives like this. That's what communion is. It's not that little cracker that you choke down once a quarter with barely enough grape juice to get it down. Is this making any sense? So let's get back to our original opening. Everything's getting better. Everything's getting worse. It's going to continue that way until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. That will continue until the war is over. So God is having you and me in our little private, local struggles walk through a small version of what's taking place cosmically. Why would He do that? Because it's, this has been true always, we just keep forgetting it. This ain't home. This ain't it. Now the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and it's going to be transformed. And that, yeah, in that sense, it's home. But this system that we're walking through, this insane, ugly, cruel system of life that we call the world. It's it's coming to an end. Its days are numbered. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, see, Paul doesn't say what Christians say. Paul says, uh, be children of the light. Don't be children of darkness, for the night is far spent. The dawn is at hand. We got it completely backwards. We're talking about the dark, the dark getting darker. Well, yeah, the dark gets darker. The light's getting lighter. Until finally the light over completely destroys the dark. But here's what I want to, I want to close with this. Everything God has been doing since the dawn of, the, of time has been to train a people he can trust for rulership over the universe to come. We are not at the end of the age We're at the beginning of the age. We're at the end of the beginning. 
We're not at the end of the end. Right? You go out and look up at the stars, all those wonderful stars, what are they? They're underdeveloped real estate. Of the increase of his kingdom and government, there will be no end. What does that mean? Of the increase of his kingdom and government, there'll be no end. Why was God, why was Paul mad at the Corinthians for taking each other to law court and suing one another? And in the process of doing that, he said to them, well, you can't even settle arguments between the, your, yourselves. Don't you people know you were going to rule over angels? That's one of those statements that makes me want to rewind the tape and say, Paul, could you just back up a minute and park on that statement just for a minute instead of zooming past it like you think we already understand it? No, he just went right on. It was a common knowledge to him. You write this on the shirt of the person in front of you so they'll remember it. Don't waste your sorrows. Don't waste your sorrows. God's not the author of sorrow. 1976, I got on a, in a car with a friend of mine to go eat catfish, and he stuck a cassette player. Those of you over 40 can explain to your children what a cassette player is. Or you can go watch Guardians of the Galaxy, figure out what a cassette player is. And Barry McGuire was singing a song, and the Holy Spirit spoke it right to my heart. And he said, I want you to listen to this song. Pay attention to this song. And the song said, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word, said she. But all oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And the Holy Spirit said to me, will you trust me, no matter how long it takes, to take you through that? It's amazing the miracles that can happen inside of you between the house and the catfish house. Ten minute drive. But when I got in the car, I was one kind of person. When I got out of the car, I was, I was a different person. The difference in me was not great in the eyes of anybody that knew me, but the change inside of me was profound. I said, I, I can't live in the pain I'm in. And I do not know how to get through it. But because of Calvary, I trust you no matter how long this is going to take. And you know what, y'all? So far it's taken 45 years. He who has begun a good work in me will finish it. But to, to be honest, contrary to a lot of the super-duper Christianese sermons I've had to sit through over the last 45, 50 years, it was the hard times that produced the greatest transformations, not the whoop-de-doo times. And now, when I hear people give their testimonies or they preach, 
I don't want to hear about their great victories. I, I understand victory. I want to hear about how they walked through the times when it was so dark, nothing made sense, and they trusted anyway. Does that make sense? Why would God do that? Because that's the only thing that can train you to be trusted to rule in the world to come. You know, people say, well, you don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I know, but how about being so heavenly minded, you are of some earthly good? (laughs) And because the people of God down through history believed that the kingdom of God was coming on earth, they established orphanages and hospitals and stopped the mistreatment of animals. You do know the ASPCA is a Christian organization established by William Wilberforce the same year he fought slavery and kicked it out of England. A righteous man is concerned with the welfare of his animals, the Bible says. And we did all those things. What if, the, what if our forebears had thought they were going to fly away? What if William Carey, instead of laying his life down on the mission field, had thought he was going to get raptured before 1820? I got a, I got a young student. When he was 17 years old, he came, to, it was 1977, he was 17 years old, I was barely older than that. But he came to me all upset. Because here was his problem. He had gotten down below $3,000 in his bank account. In 1977, I had never seen $3,000 except written on a piece of paper. He was raised in poverty. He was terrified of poverty. He was, his, his bank account got below $3,000. The Lord spoke to me and said, tell him if he will go give that money, go plant that money in, in the hands of worthy places, which didn't include me. I said, go give this money. Give it. Give it. Make sure you pray about where to give it. If you will let your hands go of that money, before you're 40, God will make you a millionaire. He just turned 50, and he's a 200 millionaire. He just opened his 35th company. He's master of that company. But you know what he does? He disciples his managers who disciple their employees. He knows all their names. They, he flies around and visits the managers. And, and, and he shepherds the managers, has Bible studies with them. He's baptized their kids. He's been with them in, in tragedies. He's pastoring a company of pastors who are shepherding hundreds of employees. They don't meet on Sunday. They meet Monday through Friday. And he called me one day. He said, you, you, think, you think there's something wrong with me? He said, I, don't, I haven't been to church in weeks. I said, yeah, you're going, you're going straight to hell. You haven't been to church in weeks. 
You're being the church every day you live, every breath you breathe. For heaven's sakes, you're going you're gonna to go to a building once a week and sit and listen to somebody talk to placate your religious guilt? I love Sunday morning church. I like living in a culture that is influenced by Sunday morning church. I've been in lots of cultures that don't do anything on Sunday morning but get over Saturday night. I miss it. I'm, I can tell when I'm in a part of the country where there's not been that Christian influence and there's not an honor for the, for the Sabbath and the spirit of the Sabbath. But let's don't go too far with that. Because here's what's happening. And I'll say this in closing. Your sorrows, though they are never set in motion by God, they are God's classroom to train you for rulership of the world to come. And what you do in your... Let me, how, will God, how will God judge it? Well, here, think about it. He said if you give a cup of cold water in His name, you will not lose your reward. God is so extravagant that if you handle a conflict between you and your brother-in-law, and you handle it with wisdom and grace and patience, God may decide that one issue in your life was enough to prepare you to rule ten cities. Jesus said in another place, don't, whom is forgiven much, they love much. To whom much is given, much is required. Whom is forgiven much, they love much. What if the ones of us who had the most sordid, nasty, broken, embarrassing baggage are therefore the most eloquently prepared to rule vast empires to come? What if the single mother who can't hardly get through the week because she hadn't got enough money to manage, but she somehow learns to do it and she's managing and managing and managing and God says, your cup of cold water that you've been managing all this time has made you worthy to, to rule over the entire economy of a nation to come. I'm not being fanciful. I'm telling you what the Bible says. This is not the whole story. Since I saw you all last, I've, I've buried 12 of my closest friends. 12. The oldest one was 67. The youngest one was 23. I do not sorrow like those who have no hope. I do sorrow. I will not waste my sorrow. How can I waste my sorrow? Two ways. I can waste my sorrow by ignoring it and doing the happy, clappy, charismatic BS thing of playing like nothing's wrong. BS stands for bad stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Or 
I can waste my sorrow by prolonged, unnecessary grieving and self-pity and feeling that God has let me down. That's how you can waste your sorrow. If you don't waste your sorrow, what does the sorrow do? It works for us what the Bible says is an exceeding weight of glory. The outward man is perishing. The inward man is being renewed day by day while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For this momentary sorrow works in us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Just take, take somebody's hand near you. <clears throat> feel, feel that hand in your hand. Feel it. Think about the person that that hand represents. Even if you don't know each other. If anything was to happen to that person, even if you don't know each other, there would be such a sense of loss, such a sense of pain. How much more if it's someone you love, someone you know, someone tied to you on the heart level. We have this moment to hold in our hand and to touch as it sifts through our fingers like sand. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come, but we have this moment Jesus said he would be with us every moment to the end of the age. So we know we do not have to waste our sorrows. We do not have to fear our sorrows. We do not have to ignore our sorrows. And we can press forward through them knowing that now it makes sense why James says count it all joy. When you fall into diverse trials and temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith develops endurance. And endurance, Paul says in Romans 5, brings hope. And hope will not let you down. Because we don't have a hope-so kind of hope. We have a guaranteed future. It's only hope because it's not here yet. When it gets here, we won't need hope anymore. We think about this, this truth in the face of terrorism, in the face of potential international war, but we also think about it in the face of a broken friendship, a disappointed relationship, a bad medical report, a collapsed economy, or just a momentary hurt feeling because someone said something to you that you never thought they would say. Father, gather up our sorrows and help us remember that the reason you went to the cross where all sorrow of every imaginable form was placed upon you was so that when you rose from the dead, you would bring up resurrection life for every one of those sorrows. Thank you, Father, that you are working in us to make us into who you intended us to be. And you who have begun this good work in us will complete it. In the meantime, I ask you, Father, to help us be faithful to where we've been planted. 
Help us live where we are. We're not missing the ball game in a small church, in a small town, in a small state, in a small part of the country. We're not missing the ball game. You don't measure reality by that. Or you wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem. Deliver every man and woman in this room, especially young people who fear they're not going to make their mark. They're not going to do anything important. Lord, please help us all learn. We will never do anything important enough to fill the hole in our ego. The only thing we can do that really value is of any value is to love you and love who's in front of us and not waste our sorrows. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, we do have a few more minutes. And all I will say in closing is I'm very grateful that uh, I strangely ran across. I don't I don't keep up with these things. This is this is a YouTube message. Uh, Someone placed it on YouTube and it was brought to my attention months ago and I just shelved it this morning uh, when it came time to record the nightlight, I was struggling with whether to deal, deal with the, the religious spirit, the current struggles that we're facing internationally and nationally and personally, and uh, dealing with our own sorrow. And here, here, all three of these issues that were on my mind ended up being on this one message. I pray the Spirit, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, will make this real to all of us in the circumstances that we're in.